0: It is Wednesday, November 8th, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk taxes. First, with Indivisible member and organizer Kat Martin, who has put together the Trump Tax Plan Resistance Summit. We will learn all about that. And then we will talk with Andy Nicholas. He is the Associate Director of Fiscal Policy with the Washington State Budget and Policy Center, and he will help us try to make sense of how the GOP tax plan may affect us here in the state. All that plus our weekly dose of good news. Indivisible member Kat Martin joins us on the show now to talk about the event that she has organized in Seattle on Sunday called the Trump Tax Plan Resistance Summit, which is part of Indivisible's nationwide Trump Tax Scam Week of Action. Kat Martin, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hey, Stefan, glad to be here.
0: So where did the idea for this event come from and how did you wind up organizing it?
1: Well, I am probably a pretty average indivisibler these days. I really (laughs) fell into becoming an organizer by accident. Uh, I participated in the Women's March in January and literally accidentally ended up co-organizing the Tax March Seattle. Uh, I kept up with it a little bit after that and was invited back to Washington, D.C. this summer to meet with the national organizers. And I came back from that just really fired up and ready to do some good work here in Washington State.
0: Great. And so now you have this conference that is planned for Sunday. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that. This is a one-day planning conference focusing on tax policy uh, and in particular fighting back against the GOP tax bill. You are going to have Indivisible's policy manager, Chad Bolt, who was on the show with us a couple weeks back. And then you've got a keynote address from Seattle-area venture capitalist and philanthropist Nick Hanauer. Uh, The day will focus on creating action plans, for fighting back against the Trump tax plan. Tell us a little bit about the itinerary. What can attendees expect?
1: Well, the first thing I think to mention is that um, people might want to come to this because taxes are daunting. People don't often um, know how to discuss taxes or how to analyze tax plans, really, beyond general talking points that they might get from their members of Congress. Right. Things like sound bites that you hear everybody's going to get $4,000 back that sort of thing, Um, being able to respond to that, to understand that, uh, and to be able to answer to it. Um, So I guess I would really look for people to walk away with three things from the event. Um, I'd like for people to have a deeper understanding of what the proposal itself entails, what the tax cut and jobs plan, as it's currently called, entails, what's really included in it. Um, that's a moving target right now because of are marked yeah. markup. But basically, we have kind of a sense of what they're trying to do, how it's going to affect us personally and as a community and as a state. Um, Washington State gets about 25% of its budget from federal money. If this tax plan goes through, we are going to need to really rethink how we do things here in the state of Washington. And lastly, how you talk about it, what you can do about it.
0: Great. So it sounds like you're going to be arming people with uh, information all across the board. You know, people who are unfamiliar with Nick Hanauer might be a little surprised to hear that you've got a venture capitalist as part of this event. Uh, Tell us a little bit about him and why you've included him.
1: Nick Hanauer is an amazing person. For people who aren't familiar with him, I encourage them to, whether or not they attend this event, to look him up watch some of his TED Talks, perhaps read some of his recent journal articles, or even pick up his book. He describes himself as a proud and unapologetic capitalist, entrepreneur, and civic activist, which is kind of an interesting thing to hear about a venture capitalist. He's published and spoken most extensively about his own experiences and thoughts as a billionaire. Specifically around the idea that as someone who's succeeded and benefited in our economy, he sees this growing wealth divide here in the United States as a critical concern to our society. And not because he's a liberal do-gooder, not because it isn't fair, he's not making a moral argument. The issue, he says, is that it doesn't benefit our society, our economy, or in fact, plutocrats like himself.
0: In what way, and I I don't want you to necessarily speak for him, but in what way does the current system not benefit plutocrats like him? It seems like the 1% is doing pretty well under this system.
1: The 1% is doing great, and the system as designed is going to increasingly transfer wealth to the 0.01%ers like himself. The problem, he states, is that it's not sustainable. Got it. Any thriving capitalist economy in the world has a thriving middle class. Without that, you ultimately end up either devolving into a feudalist state or with some kind of an authoritarian regime. Uh, in other words, pitchforks at the door.
0: Right, exactly. Well, the authoritarian regime sounds like uh, music to the ears of our current uh, uh, POTUS. Yeah, so that's yeah. definitely something to push back against. Um, so in in addition to the indivisible groups that you were hoping attend, uh, you're also hoping to get people kind of from across the grassroots board. Who else are you hoping is going to show up on Sunday?
1: Well, the, the groups we've reached out to most thoroughly have been indivisible groups, of course. Um, but pretty much any progressive group or cause has also been hopefully rounded up in the marketing we've been doing for the event. Um, We do have some folks from the progressive democratic wing of a couple of states coming. Um, We have indivisible groups. We have some progressive organizations who will join us. And I'm hopeful that we may actually even have some rational Republicans joining us. (laughs) (laughs) They're in short
0: supply these days.
1: They are, but they're out there. And they're equally concerned. And if you read their platform, it reads quite like our platform, in fact.
0: I think there's a pretty solid Venn diagram between our two groups, uh, between rational. uh, Well, I guess maybe let's just say rational people of of, of all stripes are welcome. How about that?
1: Yeah, exactly. So if you were looking at particular job categories of people, um, if I could get anybody, you know, if I could make a shout out here, I would say that any educators healthcare workers, state and local policymakers, uh, business owners for heaven's sakes, obviously progressive organizations, and union and immigrant uh, organizations might want to attend. Anybody who's impacted by this, which is everybody might benefit from knowing how to better talk about
0: it. Yeah, to talk about it and also to talk amongst themselves, the various groups. Uh, And to that end, one of the agenda items for the seminar is learning how to build coalitions and campaigns that last. Progressive groups have benefited a great deal from coalitions. Indivisible, I know, has worked here in the state with groups like FUSE. Talk a little bit about the importance of coalitions.
1: Not one penny, the campaign itself that we're really here talking about as part of a tax site is a coalition on a national level of more than 50 organizations. So in in a nutshell, what I would be hoping to do is to bring that national level and make it locally actionable. And I think what's important to remember, and I know this is going to sound a little bit silly, but nobody wins when you're playing house. Mm. In other words, there's not a winner or a loser when you build coalitions. You find common ground, and I have common ground with rational Republicans, as I do with organizations like Fuse and Indivisible and All In for Washington. And then you find actionable moments that you can work together on to achieve common goals.
0: Okay. That makes good that sense. Was talked about. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about uh, the building campaigns that last aspect. Uh, this one is particularly intriguing since progressive resistance movements can suffer from burnout. And I, I think we've seen that uh, a little bit over the last year. How will people learn to build campaigns that last?
1: So I'm a new organizer. Uh, so that's an area I'm keenly interested in as well. I think what we need to learn as organizers is that building campaigns at last requires thinking about things strategically. Um, When something critical happens like a Trump is elected, we have an immediate knee-jerk emotional reaction. People wanna do something. They wanna pick up the phone and call a member of Congress. That immediate response, that visceral emotional response gets people interested. And that can be the spur that gets people involved for the first time, but it can't be what a campaign is built on. In other words, if all you have is that emotional hook, people are going to burn out because you can't, you know, stay on fire forever. Uh, The keys to long-running campaigns are being strategic, thinking through what your goals of the campaign are, who it is you need to have working together on the campaign, and who it is you need to reach out to to be most effective. You know, you can't reach out to everybody. So in a campaign, you have to really think critically about who it's most important to reach and how you can connect with those people and groups. Um, Toward that end, I think what you have to then do is do the really hard work of scheduling things in the future, thinking about the long run. Um, It's easy to say, I'm going to go do this thing today. I'm going to call my member of Congress today. But for campaigns to work over the long haul, I think you have to think about what you're going to do next week. And how is that different from what I'm doing today? And how about next month or six months from now? How did my strategy change over time? Uh, In other words, I think you have to approach a campaign thinking that we're fighting a war, not a battle. You have to plan future events out beyond what you can see in the immediate horizon. And then I think there are two other aspects of this. Um, the, The second would be that You can only sustain campaigns by bringing people together regularly, and that's something Indivisible is really good at. That forms the structure and the basis of your ongoing campaign, and it's that collective action that cements a group of people as individuals together. When they get together regularly, they feed off of each other's energy, and creatively and intelligently, stuff builds off of that. Um, Lastly, I'd say that you have to continually educate people on issues that arise in the campaign. We tend to think that because we've studied something deeply that other people know what we know, or that once we've had a discussion on a topic that people will understand it and remember it. And that's not the way human beings learn and invest in subjects. We need to hear them many times regularly to really understand them deeply and to integrate them into our action plan.
0: Excellent. Well, it does sound like the seminar that is planned for Sunday is part of that continuing education. So right on target there. Um, The event is intended for not just Washington, but for the whole region, including California, Oregon, Montana, and Idaho. Uh, Your Facebook page mentions that you have what is being referred to as travel scholarships. Tell us just a little bit about that. What will the scholarship cover?
1: Uh, For those who needed it, uh, we have been able to cover transportation costs and lodging if they needed it. Um, The great thing about being a coalition is that everybody brings something to the party. And in some ways, we've been able to do some fundraising nationally. So that's allowed us to bring a number of people in who wouldn't otherwise have been able to attend.
0: That's great. Before we go, I should mention that you are the keeper of the Trump chicken. This is the uh, enormous (laughs) inflatable chicken with a giant pompadour making the OK sign with one of his... uh, of his wings. He shows up at uh, protests and events. Uh, how did you wind up in possession of this now rather ubiquitous piece of budget prop?
1: You know, when we were organizing Tax March, one of the organizers down in California, uh, Danelle Morton, actually had the idea to bring this Year of the Rooster chicken that was actually commissioned for a mall in China. Uh-huh. Uh, Artist by the name of Casey Lachelet here in Seattle, in fact was commissioned to create a rooster sculpture, 60 feet tall. It's in a mall in China. And all over China, to celebrate the year of the rooster, they have these cold-air inflatable roosters, which everybody in the United States is now familiar with. Danelle had the idea of bringing these over, and rather than being a reverent iconic object, they would obviously be an item of ridicule. We flew them over in a flock here for the tax march, and... I was a poor sucker who ended up ordering the thing from China for our group and have ended up the keeper of the chicken.
0: Wow. And that makes you something of a local celebrity, Kat, i got to (laughs) say.
1: Well, I am the chicken wrangler.
0: (laughs) You're the chicken wrangler. Nice. So for the seminar on Sunday, where can people learn more and where can they sign up?
1: If you are on Facebook, uh, you can go to Tax March Seattle where there's a pinned post at the top of the page about the event and a link to register if you're on the web, you'll find links to the event on the National Indivisible sites, notonepenny.org, or on the move-on calendar. Uh, if neither of those work for you, can, you can simply email Bart, B-A-R-T, at notonepenny.org.
0: Perfect. And I will have links to all of that on the SoundCloud page and also on the website. Kat Martin, thank you so much for putting on the seminar this Sunday, and thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks, Stefan. We'll see you then.
0: It is time now for this week's Dose of Good News. What, you ask? No call to action? Well, here's the deal. Our Dose of Good News is so good that the only possible call to action is to celebrate and enjoy. And I'm, I'm guessing that you have probably done that already because the Dose of Good News that I'm talking about is Tuesday's Democratic electoral sweep. Shall I count the ways that it was awesome? Yeah, yeah I think I'm going to. So, First, we had a decisive victory in what was the most watched race of the day, the governor's race in Virginia. Democrat Ralph Northam won a decisive victory against Ed Gillespie, who ran a campaign of divisiveness and fear. I think we can call that a Trumpian campaign, and I think we can also say that the politics of Trump lost last night. Also in Virginia, a transgender candidate for the House of Delegates by the name of Danica Raine beat her challenger. Oh, and did I mention that challenger wrote the state's discriminatory bathroom bill? But wait, as they say, there's more. In the House of Delegates races across the state, Democrats picked up 16 seats, bringing the balance of power to within one seat. And there are some races that are so close that they are being recounted. Did I mention that Virginia fought on the side of the Confederacy? No? Well, I'm doing that now. Uh, Speaking of states that fought for the Confederacy, Democrats in the House of Representatives in Georgia picked up two seats, both of which were absolute shockers because, did I mention, this is Georgia, and both of those seats have been solidly Republican for decades. And in New Jersey, where a Democrat replaced Chris Christie, Hoboken elected its first Sikh American as mayor. This after some postcard mailers essentially accused him of being a terrorist. By the way, I think it is worth noting that this is the first race that we have seen in the year since the 2016 election that wasn't a special election to fill a vacancy left by a Trump appointee. Now, why is this important? Because administrations always try to select cabinet members from the districts they think are going to be safe seats. So the deck was always stacked against Democrats in all of the races that we saw this year in Montana, Kansas, and Georgia. And even though Democrats lost by far smaller margins than they ordinarily would have in those races, they were still, you know, losses. But last night was a general election, and that went decisively for the Democrats. And... I have deliberately saved the best for last. Here at home, Democrat Manka Dengra won her state Senate race in the 45th Legislative District handily. And this turns control of Olympia and the state over to the Democrats. Also, Seattle will have its first female mayor in almost 90 years. So, all in all, just a great night for Democrats and a solid repudiation of the Trump agenda, all of which I am sure will have ramifications for the races to come in 2018. So, stay tuned for that. And there you have it. That is this week's Dose of Good News. The GOP tax bill is complex, something House Republicans likely see as an advantage in their rush to push the plan into law. Those of us here in Washington state are trying to determine just how it might affect us. So I invited on Andy Nicholas to discuss it with us. He is the associate director of fiscal policy with the Washington State Budget and Policy Center. I started our discussion by asking him about the sales tax deduction and what its proposed elimination might mean for us here.
2: So you're taking away, in this case, a deduction here in Washington state on sales taxes that we pay, and that is a deduction that benefits many middle-income and upper-middle-income households across our state, particularly if you're in a year where you've bought a new car or you've bought an appliance, a refrigerator, uh, something like that that deduction definitely helps take the bite that sales taxes pay out of um, some of the cost of that purchase. And it's a it's a big deal for a lot of people. Um, and so by eliminating this deduction effectively um, and then using it to buy down tax rates for those at the very top of the income scale, you wind up with a plan that on balance is designed to... Do, if you're lucky, a little bit for people in the middle income, but a whole lot for those up the income scale because of the value of those rate deductions and all the crazy things they're doing on pass-through stuff. Under this plan, as it is right now, the richest 1% in our state would get 46%, nearly half of the total tax cut, whereas if you're in the middle or the lower income range – Uh, Up to a quarter of households could face a tax increase overall because largely because of the elimination of that of the SALT deduction.
0: Something else that has come up uh, in the tax plan is the limits that the GOP is proposing on, on property tax and mortgage deductions. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about how that might affect home buyers and homeowners here. Um, as we know, housing prices have shot up across western Washington and King County. Prices have shot up over 18 percent in one year. Uh, so This is kind of a speculative question, but something like this could have a real impact on uh, the housing market here. It could hurt homeowners. It could drive more people to rent for longer. How do you see it playing out?
2: Yeah. Again, it's another example of where if you look at something in a vacuum, a policy in and of itself that mostly benefits people at the higher end of the income scale and does deserve some serious look. But again, they they will walk back this deduction, cap it at five hundred thousand dollars, which in this housing market is not a whole lot for a house. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we purchased our house. Back in, uh, we were fortunate back in 2010 for the 330 or something like that. And now it's worth over 500. And so if we were buying now, and the Budget and Policy Center is a great gig, we are not at the top of the income scale by any stretch of the imagination. And that's true for thousands of Washingtonians um, across our state. Now we would not be getting the full value of that deduction. Um, on our house. And housing costs, aside from just rent and um, the cost of housing, it's getting more expensive to live in general. And that's a really important thing for lots of families, especially those with young kids that are trying to make ends meet. Um, So again, it's taking away a deduction that does disproportionately benefit people at the top of the income scale, but is a a real lifesaver for people in the middle end of the income scale in order to reduce taxes for those at the very top.
0: Yeah, it's getting to be a pretty familiar refrain. So we've been hearing that pretty much everyone will be getting some form of a tax cut. But from what we've seen, the cuts for most people just aren't very substantial. What sort of tax cuts are Washingtonians looking at with this bill?
2: If you're at the top of the income scale in Washington state, you get almost $90,000 per year. Um, in a tax break. You know, your taxes will go down by that much. If you're at the poorest end of the income scale, your average tax cut is about
0: $120. And that amounts to what you say, 0.6% uh, of your income. Yeah,
2: actually, it's now 0. 0.5. Wow! So you get an after-tax income boost of around half a percentage point if you're at the bottom end of the income scale, whereas you get a almost 4% boost if you're at the top end of the income scale. So no, ma- no matter how you look at the numbers, it is heavily skewed toward the very wealthiest households in our
0: state and our nation. Yeah. You know, we don't have a CBO score yet uh, that is coming, but we do know that this bill is going to explode the deficit by some $1.5 trillion. That's the number that's been on the table since the uh, the very first House bill. Most experts expect that this GOP Congress will try to pay this down the road, pay for this down the road by slashing a number of social services. Uh, that's what they've done in the past, particularly under Bush's tax cut, where they tried to privatized Social Security. Um, specifically, what are some of the cuts that we are likely to see here in Washington?
2: Yeah, just to step back and remember that while we're doing economically pretty well as a state, that it's not going to be any surprise to any of your listeners that we have some serious issues that we're grappling with here at home, that homelessness is a big issue. Uh, housing costs, child care are big things. These are all things that are going to be in the crosshairs. Going forward, um, you know, the the proposal to get rid of the, uh, the ACA was a perfect map of what they want to go after. And Medicaid mm-hmm. is extremely important program. It it really benefits everybody, but directly it helps those at the bottom end of the income scale who are getting mental health services, getting treatment services on homelessness. You know, food assistance has long been in the crosshairs. I don't know why. Um, Just supplying people with food is just apparently just abhorrent under <laughs> this, this strange conservative ideology, yeah. but there's, um, SSI supplemental security, um, which is a big, uh, a big investment that helps us deal with homelessness and provides people with, uh, a little bit of cash assistance to help make ends meet while they're getting services. So these are, these are the kinds of things that really um, benefit our communities all across our state. And they're going to be in um, definitely in the crosshairs. And, you know, it's also from a higher level economic perspective, it's also important to remember that this is these are dollars that are going into our state right now that people are you know, turning around and spending back in the local economy. If we start sucking $1.5 trillion nationally out of states, that's going to have an, an impact on the overall economy. And so mm-hmm. it's troubling in, a, in a, a whole lot of ways, from a human impact to a what's the aggregate impact on our state economy. Uh, the idea that you're going to be cutting some of these important investments is, should be deeply troubling to your listeners and to all Washingtonians.
0: Absolutely. Agreed. Something else that I think is is interesting to talk about here in, in terms of its impact in Washington uh, is the corporate tax cut. And what we are seeing, and we talked about this uh, with Chad Bolt a couple of weeks ago, but what we're seeing here is a cut from a 35 percent rate for corporations down to 20 percent. That's what's being proposed How do we see that impacting a lot of the major industries that we have here? I mean, we have Amazon, we have Boeing, we have Starbucks. We have we have a number of of major major industries here uh, in western Washington. How do we see this playing out there?
2: Yeah. So, And as Chad mentioned in the previous podcast, this whole 35 percent top rate thing is a complete myth. Like, yes, statutorily, that's the top rate. But the effective tax rate is the one that you actually want to look at. What do they actually pay after they've taken all their sort of deductions and loopholes and everything?
0: And that winds up being about 14 percent in the real world, right?
2: Yeah. and For the big corporations that you mentioned that are located here in Washington state, it's considerably less than that than that. It's fascinating that
0: really what rates do they ultimately wind up paying then? It's less than 14 percent, you're saying.
2: Oh, in some years it's negative. Uh, and Boeing, just between between 2008 and 2012, all four of those years, not only did they pay nothing, they got refunds. Uh, their effective tax rate was about negative five point negative 5.5 percent.
0: So taxpayers are basically subsidizing these companies.
2: Yeah, the same thing is true of other big corporations here. Uh, CenturyLink had a negative 5 uh, negative percent rate. Facebook had a negative 40 percent federal tax rate over that period. These are periods where corporations were, were experiencing losses during these times. So it's you might expect that they're not going to have a sp- especially high tax rate, but that they're paying negative rates is something. And even in their big profitable years, the effective rates for Boeing and many of these other ones are in the single digits.
0: So they don't need a tax cut is what you're saying. Yeah.
2: Here. The idea that we're going to suddenly make this a much more business friendly environment when your effective tax rate is already in the single digits as it is, is just insane. And it's it's really interesting that Paul Ryan chose to go to Boeing to roll this out. You may re- remember this a month or so ago. He had a big event at Boeing right. where he repeatedly doled out this 35% tax myth as if Boeing actually pays that. And it's mm. just nothing close to that. Um, you know, Pacar is another one that had a nearly a negative 20% rate over this. We have a number of giant corporations in this state that are already benefiting handsomely from the national corporate um, tax system and do not need any more of a tax cut as it is um, and are plenty competitive.
0: But, of course, you can anticipate the argument that these corporations bring jobs, they bring money into the region. Is there any validity to that? I mean, should we be incentivizing these corporations by saying that you're lowering their tax rate?
2: Even if you buy the, if you buy into the notion that by cutting corporate tax rates you're somehow making the area more competitive, which there's a lot of research that throws cold water onto that idea, that um, you know, particularly state and local taxes are uh, in a good year two to three percent of total operating costs, and Warren Buffett has a great quote where he's saying if you're operating at that level you're not going to be a business much longer. Right. You know, the, the the point being that there are many things that have a much bigger influence on a business's cost structure than state and local taxes, but because this is a national tax cut, it's going to be it would, the benefits would be for all corporations in the nation. So it wouldn't do anything to make Washington state any more competitive. Um, they're arguing that it would make the whole country more competitive, and you would have suddenly have more businesses um, locating here. But again, you're talking about effective tax rates that are in the single digits, that are better in many cases than the deals that they're getting internationally. Um, and so, the idea that you're gonna that you're gonna uh, be able to stimulate the economy flies in the face of reality and flies in the face of in a whole bunch of academic research that shows that you're never going to uh, reap the returns that you're claiming that you're getting. And of course, it's at the expense of things that we know grow the economy, like investments in childcare and education and health care. Those are the things that have a very proven bang for the buck in the long term. And we'd be far better off reforming the national tax code in a way that actually generates more revenue um, and more in a more equitable way um, to, to invest in all of those things that make our communities stronger and our, our entire economy better.
0: Andy Nicholas, uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to, uh, help make sense of what is a very complex issue. So thank you.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: And we will end this week on a new segment, our listener profile this week, Indivisible member, Joe Johnson.
3: On November 8th, you know, that was this horrible day for me. I'd always followed politics my entire life. I was felt educated on it, and I was so sure that Hillary was going to win, and then she somehow miraculously didn't, Um, and uh, after that, I just went through this period of darkness where I felt like I couldn't even stand to think about politics or what was happening at the federal level. Then, uh, during his first week in office, Trump put out the uh, Muslim ban, and uh, even though I'd been really disengaged from the whole thing, really backed off from... Uh, really much of anything related to politics, that day I realized that uh, that wasn't an option, and that when we're silent, these horrible kinds of things happen. They fill the vacuum when, when we don't act, and so ever since then I've been uh, engaged in just about every one of the fights we've had, as many as I can be. And even though sometimes, as I uh, said, uh, I feel like I'm shouting into the wind, we've actually made a lot of progress. and We've gotten a lot of things done, um, and I'm just so proud to be a part of a group that's willing to shout into the wind with me. Uh, my name is Joe Johnson, and that's why I'm part of Indivisible.
0: And that will do it for this week's show. If you would like to learn more about the show, do head over to indivisiblepodcast.org. And while you're there, why not subscribe? Hey, all the kids are doing it. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thanks again to my guests, Kat Martin and Andy Nicholas. And thanks, as always, to you for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.